Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the conference call to discuss ProAssurance's results for the first quarter of 2015. These results were reported in a news release on May 7, 2015. The release, along with the company's other SEC filings, including the 10Q filed on May 7, 2015, are intended to provide you with important information about the significant risks and other factors that, that could affect ProAssurance's business and alter expected results. Also, management expects to make statements on this call dealing with projections, estimates, and expectations, and explicitly identifies these as forward-looking statements subject to applicable safe harbor prote protections. The content of this call is accurate only on May 8, 2015, and except as required by law or regulation, ProAssurance will not undertake and expressly, expressly disclaims any obligation to update or alter information disclosed as part of these forward-looking statements. Now I would like to turn the call over to Mr. Frank O'Neill. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning, everyone. Please note that we'll reference non-GAAP items in our call today. Our recent news release provides a reconciliation of those non-GAAP numbers to their GAAP counterparts. Participating in today's call are our Chairman and CEO, Stan Starnes, Howard Friedman, the President of our Healthcare Professional Liability Group, Chief Financial Officer and Executive Vice President Ned Rand, and Mike Boguski, the President of our Workers' Compensation Business. I'll ask Stan to offer us some opening thoughts. Stan? Thanks, Frank, and my thanks to everyone on the call for taking the time to be with us this morning. We'll focus today on a solid quarter for ProAssurance, and we will be highlighting a $35 million operating profit, an increase in gross written premium driven by our workers' compensation segment, a significant amount of new business, as well as early success in our cross-selling initiatives. I also want to underscore ProAssurance's continuing commitment to delivering value to our shareholders through dividends and a steady, impactful stock repurchase program. Frank? Thanks, Stan. We're going to begin today with our Chief Financial Officer, Ned Rand, for an overview of consolidated results. Then we'll go into each of our operating segments. But first, Ned? Thanks, Frank. Starting at the top of the income statement, I'll highlight an increase in gross written premium in the quarter again driven by an increase in workers' compensation, which was up 15% year-over-year, and a small contribution from our Lloyd segment. Those gains were offset somewhat by a decline in top line in our specialty P&C segment. We have said many times before that we see terrific opportunities in bringing together our MPL and workers' comp products, and that over the course of last year, we were laying the groundwork to enable this. We have begun to see early success in our efforts in cross-marketing with $735,000 in gross premiums written that is directly attributable to these efforts. We continue to be very encouraged by the potential to leverage these two lines of business that are so critical to those operating in the healthcare arena. Net premiums written were $198 million, down a fraction of a point from last year's first quarter on a 23% increase in seated premiums, which are higher because of our session after intercompany eliminations of $2 million to Lloyd Syndicate 1729 from the podiatry business within our specialty PNC segment and increased seated premiums from our workers' compensation segment. Net premiums earned were $172 million in the quarter, essentially unchanged from Q1 of 2014. The decline in specialty PNC premiums earned of $11 million 
was offset by increases of almost $6 million each from our workers' compensation and Lloyd segments. The increase in Lloyd's is due to the one-quarter lag in reporting the results of the syndicate, so there is no comparable premium in the first quarter of last year. Total revenues were $208 million, virtually unchanged from a year ago. Our expense ratio was 29.9% in the quarter, compared to 30.6% in the year-ago quarter. Last year's Q1 expense ratio was increased by approximately 1.7 percentage points in transaction-related and other one-time expenses, and this is offset somewhat by the addition of Syndicate 1729 in the first quarter of 2015. Our current accident year net loss ratio for the quarter was 80.7%, about a half a point higher than last year's first quarter. The current accident year loss ratio on our specialty book was up just under two and a half points, driven largely by higher accruals for internal claims adjustment expenses on lower total premiums. Results from our workers' compensation and Lloyd segments together provided a benefit of about seven points. We recognized $33.5 million of favorable development in the quarter and continue to see claim trends holding relatively steady. As we previously have discussed, while we continue to take a prudent and conservative approach to reserving, given the volatile nature of all the lines we underwrite, we would not expect favorable development, if it occurs, to occur at the same levels as in the past. Premium volumes in our healthcare professional liability line, which makes up the bulk of our favorable development, have declined over the last several years. And while pricing has remained relatively stable, as has frequency, we continue to see an upward sloping severity trend. We remain very confident in the adequacy of our reserves and continue to approach the favorable trends we are seeing with a skeptical eye. So in all, we continue to write at an enviable combined ratio of 91.1%, and we are solidly profitable, earning operating income of $34.7 million, or 61 cents per diluted share in the quarter. We remain committed to effective capital management, which along with our profitable operations, enhances the long-term value we create for our investors. In the first quarter, we spent $57 million to purchase 1.3 million shares of common stock, much of it under the terms of our 10B51 plan. As of April 30, our repurchase activity for 2015 totaled 1.7 million shares at a cost of $77 million. In year-to-date, we have paid $35 million in regular cash dividends to shareholders, in addition to the $150 million special dividend paid in January. Our present intention is to return at least 100% of net income to shareholders this year. We expect to do this primarily through share repurchases and or ordinary dividends, but we are sensitive to the price at which we buy, so we may consider other means of returning capital if needed. Just a couple of final, quarter, <clears throat> final notes on the quarter. Book value for share was $38.39, up from $38.17 at year-end. Our share, share buybacks during the quarter did dampen the growth in book value per share, but we view this as a short-term sacrifice to accomplish our goal of delivering superior long-term returns. Tangible book value per share was $32.81, and at March 31, 2015, we held $137 million in cash and short-term investments outside our insurance subsidiaries and available for use by the holding company and we have just received regulatory approval to upstream $124 million in cash and securities from an operating subsidiary to the holding company. That will happen next week. Frank? Thanks, Ted. We're going to check back with you in a minute to hear about the corporate segment. Right now we're going to switch to Howard Friedman for comments on specialty P&C. Howard? Thanks, Frank. 
In specialty PNC, gross premiums written were $144 million in the quarter, down 6% year over year, which was almost entirely the result of a decline in physician professional liability premiums. Offsetting that decline were gains in premiums for healthcare facilities, up 11%, medical technology and life sciences, up 3%, and legal professional liability, up 8%. The drop in physician premium is due to consolidation of physician practices into hospital self-insurance arrangements and competitive market pressures. There continue to be risks we simply won't write due to our, our underwriting discipline and expectations for profitability. That doesn't mean we are unable to attract and write new business. Our ability to deliver superior service and security while responding creatively to emerging risks has allowed us to generate almost $13 million of new premium in specialty P&C in the first quarter, significantly more than in any quarter in recent memory. A recent example of our ability to respond to unique liability needs came through our ProAssurance Complex Medicine Initiative. We were able to use a combination of the proprietary ProPraxis underwriting methodology and the creativity of our underwriting department and excess and surplus line subsidiary <coughs> to solve a reinsurance problem for a national not-for-profit healthcare organization that had been searching for such a solution for several years. That is just another illustration of the need to be broader in our approach to emerging risks, and we are confident our acquisitions and internal business development have put us on the right road for the future in this regard. While we see opportunities such as these, we continue to see challenges as well. One of those challenges continues to be physician consolidation which seems to be slowing in some areas, but remains very active in others. We lost three large physician groups in the quarter, two of which were brought into the self-insurance vehicles of the hospitals that acquired the groups. The loss of these accounts had an outsized effect on physician retention, which was 85% in the quarter, down two points year over year. Renewal pricing on physician business was down 1% year over year. Turning to losses, the loss environment remains benign. There was no change in overall loss trends in the specialty PNC segment. Within the largest portion of the segment, healthcare professional liability, frequency is essentially flat and severity continues to increase at 2% to 3% a year, which is manageable. First quarter net favorable reserve development in the specialty PNC segment was $32 million as compared to $47 million in the year ago quarter. This moved our net loss ratio up to 60.1%. Frank? Thanks, Howard. Now might be a good time to ask you to handle the Lloyd statement as well. Sure. Remember that we are reporting on a one-quarter lag, with the exception of investment results associated with our funds at Lloyd's, which, we are, which are held as an investment, and certain U.S.-based administrative expenses. So it will be next quarter before we begin to see year-over-year -year comparable financial results. Our 58% participation in the gross premiums written of the syndicate was $4.7 million in its fourth quarter. Underwriting expenses were $3.6 million in the quarter, primarily related to salaries <coughs> and benefits, professional fees, and amortization of policy acquisition costs. I'll remind you, we have viewed the internal costs of the syndicate as startup expenses, and we have elected not to defer them. We're confident the expense ratio will trend downward as the syndicate writes additional business and we can begin to match these costs against the associated premiums. As we are reporting the results for 1729 on a one-quarter lag, 
This quarter represents the end of the first full year of the syndicate's operations. For the year, the syndicate wrote a broad book of property and liability business, and our 58% participation in the year's gross premiums written totaled $38.4 million. The mix of business for calendar year 2014 was approximately 61% casualty reinsurance, the majority of it U.S.-based, 15% catastrophe reinsurance, 19% direct property coverage, mostly in the U.S. market, and 5% property reinsurance, again, primarily U.S.-based. The net loss ratio for the year was 68.3%, very much in line with our expectations for this startup operation. The expense ratio for the year was 72% and 66.4% if you excluded transaction-related expenses, which totaled approximately $1 million for the year. Duncandale continues to report a strong flow of submissions, which we expected given his standing and reputation in the London market. We are confident in the future of the syndicate and this segment. Frank? Thanks, Howard. Next up, workers' compensation and Mike Bogusky, the president of Eastern. Mike? Thank you, Frank. During the first quarter, our workers' compensation segment benefited from favorable production results across all operating territories, prudent expense management, continued payroll growth, and consistent loss trends. Despite experiencing competitive pressures, gross premiums written increased to $76 million in the quarter compared to $66 million in the first quarter of 2014, an increase of 15%. This included new business writings of $12.4 million in the quarter. Premium retention improved five points quarter over quarter to 87%, enhanced by the renewal of all nine of the available alternative markets programs and premium retention of 95% in that sector of our business. Pricing on renewal business increased 1% during the quarter. Audit premium increased to $1.4 million in the quarter compared to $300,000 in the first quarter of 2014 as a result of improved economic conditions and strong financial underwriting. The accident year net loss ratio was 65.9%, essentially unchanged from the first quarter of 2014. Both quarters included severity-related claim activity from extreme winter weather conditions. We were successful in closing 19% of 2014 in prior claims in the first quarter of 2015 in our traditional book of business, which is the best first quarter closing rate in our history and represents a good start to the year in this important area. Net favorable reserve development was 1.7 million in the quarter, primarily re related to our alternative markets business. The favorable reserve development reduced the net loss ratio to 62.6%, which is essentially unchanged from the first quarter of 2014. The combined ratio for the quarter was 92.6%, including 2.5 percentage points of intangible asset amortization and 1.1 points from the initiation of a corporate management fee. The expense ratio reduction in the quarter was primarily driven by 4.3 points of transaction-related and non-occurring expenses incurred in the first quarter of 2014 that we did not experience in the first quarter of 2015. Frank? 
Thanks, Mike. Let's go back to Ned now for a discussion of corporate segment results. Ned? Thanks, Frank. The corporate segment brings together a number of unrelated activities. So as in past quarters, I'll review each individually. On the revenue side of the equation, we experienced a $2.6 million year-over-year decrease in investment income, and there are several reasons for this decline. The interest income from our fixed income portfolio declined because of a negative coupon on our TIPS portfolio and the impact of lower average balances in the portfolio. In addition, we continue to favor equities and alternative investments over fixed income investments in the current investment environment. And as a result, we have allocated a larger portion of the overall portfolio to these investments. Our expectation is that these investments will provide superior returns over the long term, and in the short term, they add quarter-to-quarter volatility to our investment results. At the same time, we saw a $2.1 million increase in net realized investment gains, despite a $1.8 million other than temporary impairment related to energy investments. Starting in the first quarter of 2015, we are charging a management fee to each of our operating subsidiaries to cover costs of services provided by the corporate segment. This allows us to better track operating performance at each subsidiary while focusing on expense control throughout the organization. In the past, the bulk of these expenses have been borne by the specialty P&C segment, and that is why operating expenses are down in that segment and up in the corporate segment. Taxes are down $7 million, and this is largely attributable to the decline in pre-tax income and the impact of both our tax credit investments and our allocation to other tax-favored investments. Thanks, Ned. Stan, some final thoughts from you before we take questions? Frank, our focus continues to be on the long term and not on any single quarter's results. We are transitioning ProAssurance from a best-in-class, well-capitalized, monoline carrier into an integrated family of healthcare-centric specialty companies with fair capitalization and unrivaled expertise, focused on the broad spectrum of risk faced by healers, innovators, employers, and professionals. This transition requires an enduring commitment to our insureds and agents and an equal commitment to our shareholders. Like all others in our specialty line, we face the challenges posed by the combination of evolving changes in our healthcare system and a very soft pricing environment. Unlike others, we are uniquely positioned to convert these challenges to opportunities. To this point, we have successfully navigated the course that has taken us a long way toward becoming the organization we must become in order to take advantage of all that lies ahead of us. Given our discipline and our long-term outlook, we believe we are assured of a very bright future. Thank you, Stan. Lauren, that concludes our prepared remarks. We're ready for questions. Thank you. If you would like to ask a question, please signal by pressing star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you are using a speakerphone, please make sure your mute function is turned off to allow your signal to reach our equipment. Again, press star 1 to ask a question. Our first question comes from Amit Kumar with Macquarie. Uh, thanks, and uh, thanks, and good morning. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the call. Uh, just a few quick questions. Uh, the first question uh, regards to uh, the, the, the positive movement and the discussion on cross-selling, and clearly we are seeing some good results there. Is, is there any way to sort of broadly talk about it, and does it get to a level um, where it sort of offsets any 
pressures from competition, i.e., does it make up for the business which is uh, being lost uh, to, you know, to, to competition? Emmett, it's uh, Howard. I'll start, and then others may want to join in. Uh, I think it has a lot of potential, and I think it does uh, and, and eventually will make up a portion of the business that we lose to competition because it opens up new channels for us, new opportunities to uh, approach existing insured, say, on the workers' compensation side for their professional liability coverage, and we might not be able to get that entree uh, normally through our direct sales efforts or through our agents, depending on the state. So over a period of time, we, we do think it has potential. We have uh, one program in place now that is really just beginning uh, that would open up potentially for us a, a network of, uh, of healthcare facilities in the southeast. So it, 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 has, uh, it has opportunities for us. And maybe Mike or Stan want to comment further. Mike? Yeah, and I think just to add to, to Howard's comments, there's really four specific strategies that we can execute on. There, there's the cross-referral of agents uh, between ProAssurance and Eastern and all of our other operating entities, which is attractive. Uh, the cross-selling of additional customers, as Howard mentioned, both in traditional, our traditional business, but um, very uniquely in our ANOVA business, where we would be able to, to take the MPL and workers' comp lines uh, within our alternative market segment of our business, which we believe is going to be uh, unique in both the short term and long term. And then I think a fourth strategy for us both to consider, uh, which we had one success story this quarter, was to really look at uh, the national broker relationships across our organization and the specific healthcare units within those national brokers and to bring uh, our various product lines within to those shops. And I, I think those are four areas that uh, I think will be helpful in filling some revenue uh, d down the road. Yeah, I, I, I think Mike and Howard have it uh, exactly right, Amit. The, uh, you know, these accounts come up for renewal only once a year, so you can't do anything overnight. Uh, but there's an element of excitement among our agents and brokers over having a market in which they can easily place the two most difficult to place coverages that any healthcare organization encounters, the MPL and the workers' comp. Uh, so I think we're seeing the first fruits. We're seeing early success. We remain very committed to the strategy, and, and, and we've seen nothing uh, that deters us from continuing down this path. Got it. That's, that's helpful. The, the other question, and maybe switching gears and going back to the core MPL book, and, and, and Howard, I was sort of comparing your – uh, commentary on position consolidation and its impact, and I got the sense that after many quarters, uh, you, the language had changed. You, you, I think you raised slowing in some areas and active in others, and I think previously we were just talking about impact. Can, can you sort of imp expand on that comment? You know, or we have we crossed that hump, or, or how should we think about the impact? I, I, I think uh, what I was trying to point out was how large accounts, and particularly as the physician consolidation continues among physician groups, uh, and then in some instances large accounts or large physician groups are acquired by hospitals, how that can create volatility in, in our retention numbers. And, you know, the, the departure from our normal 87, 88 
100% retention in the first quarter was really attributable to three accounts. And, you know, five or ten years ago, we would not have seen that type of uh, volatility as a result of just a few accounts moving. That, that was the main point I was trying to make, not so much that we've crossed the threshold or over a hump or anything like that. It's really more how the larger accounts, when you, when you acquire them, you can certainly have a, a big quarter for new business, and when you retain them, they have a, a very stabilizing effect on retention. But if you, if you lose a few, and particularly in a short period of time, it can create volatility, almost like large claims do on the loss side. Got it. And just just finally, uh, on 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 the I guess the the final piece of the business on the Lloyd's piece. Uh, on the last call, we had some spent some time discussing uh, you know what the future might look like. And at the, at that time, your comments had indicated that you know things were ramping up. You were getting to the point where you'll have a clearer sense uh, as to what the marketplace is telling you um, going forward. Do do we have that sense now as to you know how we should be thinking about it, or is it still too early? Well, I think if you look at the numbers, it's still too early because 2014 yeah. obviously was not, even though it was a full year of operation for the syndicate, it was not a full year of operation for the entire team, particularly the property team that didn't join until the, basically the third quarter. Now that the, the full team is there, we need to go and and, and look at the the renewal cycle, the fourth quarter at Lloyd's in the property business is the very small, relatively speaking, uh, portion of the business. And, and even on the casualty side, a lot of business is either January 1 or July 1. So I think we're, we're very comfortable with the group we have. We're very comfortable with the submissions that are there. Uh, and as we go through this year, I think it will be much more representative of, of a, a full-year operation. So uh, no, no concern or complaints or anything on our part, but we really don't have base to compare to right now. Okay, that's uh, that's all I have. Thank you for the answers. We'll take our next question from Mark Hughes with FundTrust. Morning, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Good morning. On the uh, Lloyd segment, since you're reporting at a uh, quarter behind, uh, can you give us some sense of what the ramp ought to look like uh, um, when, uh, when you next report, just in terms of a uh, premium trends uh, from uh, from uh, Q1 to Q2, again, as reported? Well, the, the first quarter will have a, um, as it did last year, a significant amount of casualty business, um, in part for the syndicate as a whole, in part because of the business that our podiatry subsidiary seeds to the syndicate, and that gets all recorded in the first quarter because of a January 1 effective date. We will also see certainly more property business, we believe, in the first quarter because last year we didn't have it. I, I, I'm not really either ready or able to lay out, you know, what the year is going to look like quarter by quarter, but I think the, uh, the first and the second quarters are probably going to be heavier than the third and the fourth. The uh, tax rate, um, you uh, described the number of puts and takes. How should we think about that uh, on a go-forward basis, um, be influenced by level of profitability, but uh, should we assume it's uh, back up to more normal historical level, or is it, uh, should we think of, about it as being a little bit lower? So I think short answer is think about it being a little lower, and for, for a couple of reasons. One, you, 
um, you just need to consider the proportion of, of tax-exempt income to total taxable income, uh, which is up. And then you have to consider the impact of the investments that we are making in, in tax credits. And we have tax credits and have had tax credits and low-income housing tax credits for a number of years. Um, we are in the process of making an investment into some historic tax credits. And the historic tax credits turn much faster than the low-income housing tax credits. Where the low-income housing tax credits, we may see the benefit of that tax credit over call it a, a, a five or eight year time frame, the historic tax credits are more like 12 to 24 months. And we'll begin to see the impact of that uh, more materially as the year progresses. Um, that will bring down could, uh, the tax rate. Yeah, I think you could throw out uh, maybe a, a range, perhaps, where you think it might end up for uh, next couple of quarters. No, there's just there's a lot of moving parts. I'm really hesitant to, to do that, Mark. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I, I think I heard correctly that you had suggested uh, part of the reason the current accident year loss pick and uh, especially DNC was up um, perhaps was related to uh, more loss adjustment expense. Did I hear that correctly? And uh, could you elaborate on that? We, we had said that it was up because the internal costs used to be called unallocated loss adjustment expense, adjusting another now on the statutory side, uh, are somewhat higher. And then the premium base certainly has, the earned premium has moved downward. So that was primarily the cause of the increased loss ratio in the quarter. Of those two factors, is it 50-50? Uh, in I terms of the impact? Yep. OK. All right. We, we Good. Can, uh, Thank you very much. Hey, Mark, it's not, real quick. I, I think the majority of it is driven by the de decline in net earned premium. I think the actual costs being <coughs> um, allocated up as ULE costs are not up substantially, and it's really being driven by the decline in net earned premium. Right. So the underlying losses, uh, that environment hasn't changed. It's more of a internal yeah, so, allocation yeah. or leveraging issue. Yes, yeah, you know, we've got a we've got a fixed internal claim cost. Um, we think it's important to maintain um, the capabilities that we have there, so we're not looking to, to shrink that, and that's going to cause a little bit of increase in the, in the ULE ratio. Understood. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ryan Burns with Janie Capital. Good morning, guys. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, uh, just the first question, just to follow up a little bit on the uh, the tax credit increase in the quarter, um, it, it moved to in, in the queue uh, to 5.2 million from 4.4 million a year ago, and it's kind of been hovering in that mid four range. I'm just trying to figure out what what kind of impact the the, uh, the addition of these historic tax credits will be, maybe on an, on an absolute basis going forward. Yeah, that, it's a lot of it has to do with when the historic tax credits come online and and we don't really have complete control over that. It's you know, it's the development and, and and kind of when they get whatever it is that's being renovated kind of finally approved. Um, so it's hard to say. It's uh, probably two million this year. Um, we project out a effective tax rate for the organization. Um, and so we, we give some 
credit to that even in, in the first quarter, although we haven't seen the benefit of those yet. Um, a lot of it will just depend on how quickly the tax credits come online. Okay, and, and just want to confirm that those historic ones did or did not impact the first quarter this year? They do have an impact in the first okay. quarter. Great. And then also just shifting to the, um, to the investment income side, um, could you guys maybe talk about or break out the, uh, the TIPS impact on the fixed maturity side? Sure. Let me, just, let me pull it up real quick. I believe it was about a negative $850,000 that was printed by TIPS. I just want to get to my, my sheet. Yeah, so the swing in tips was about a negative was about negative eight hundred fifty thousand dollars. We actually printed um, a negative two hundred thousand dollar investment income from tips. Um, actually, the swing for the quarter is bigger than that. I apologize. It's about one point three million compared to last year. So we had a million dollar positive positive investment income in our tips Q1 of fourteen, and negative two hundred thousand dollars in Q1 of this year. Okay, great, perfect, thank you. And then, then just my last one. Um, I guess obviously the, it seems like the ROE profile, it's, again, it seems like it's continuing to contract a little bit here. Um, just wanted to, to see if, does that impact the way you guys think about buybacks, especially buying back above book value um, as the ROE kind of gets into the mid-single digit range? So our, our view on buybacks is we look at kind of what we view as the recoupment period. Um, of the dilution in book value, and as long as that's within a reasonable time frame, which we, we would say today is two to three years, um, we're, we're comfortable buying it at those levels. Great. Thanks, guys. Our next question comes from Ron Bobman with Capital Returns. Hi, gentlemen. Thanks. Um, I had a question for Michael. Um, Michael, in your prepared remarks, you mentioned um, uh, additional audit premium collections, and, and you described it as uh, result of good financial underwriting. Is, is, uh, is that candidly simply your insureds have had good payroll growth and you sort of go back and you audit the uh, growth in payrolls and you, and you invoice them for additional premium? That, that's spot on correct. Yeah, we, uh, we have a disciplined financial underwriting process and, and, and typically those customers uh, are the customers that continue to add employees and grow their businesses. And We've had a pretty good track record there, Ron, on, on the audit premium side. Uh, uh, 2014, we secured about additional uh, $3 million in audit premium. 2013, 2.5. 2012, 4.3 million. And 2011, 2.5 million. So we've had some pretty consistent um, trends on the audit premium side as we go back and look at our historical book of business. Gotcha. It's, it, I'm surprised there isn't sort of a trend where 14, you know, 14 is better than 13, 13 is better than 12, and 12 is sort of better than 11, given, I would assume, sort of underlying, underlying economic growth. What am I missing that sort of makes it sort of erratic? It's, it's really the uh, class of business and economic trends. So, and that would be more in the profile of the book of business. Um, you know, for example, in 2011, going into 2012, uh, we, we probably had more uh, customers that were in the growth market in, say, the healthcare sector, education, and, and other areas. So it really comes down to the profile of the book. Okay. And, and, okay. and, and to some degree, operating region, because, uh, 
you know, one of our strategies over time has is, is always been to be diversified um, on the geographic side. And uh, you, you do see uh, upticks and downticks in certain regions over a period of time. So th that would also have some factor into it. Okay. And I have a, a simple buyback question. Um, I'm assuming some portion of the buyback is um, um, systematized whereby you've got uh, a, uh, in essence a 10b5 and there are certain parameters and you buy at a certain pace depending upon the parameters being met. But also do you have sort of a variable component net or stand whereby you know, when opportunity presents itself you can sort of um, lean on the accelerator or, or pull back? So we, Ron, we do use a 10b5-1 plan and, and the way that the instructions under that 10b5-1 plan are set up um, and it allows the individual who is administering that, that 10b5-1 plan to do exactly that. And then, and then from time to time we will also see opportunities to buy blocks of business or blocks of shares, excuse me. And um, if, those, if those opportunities present themselves, we have the, the ability to take advantage of them. Um, if, we, if and when we have a 10b5-1 plan in place, it is our view that we should not independently be in the market. Okay, but you've incorporated um, variability in, in it depending upon um, Absolutely, where the stock yeah. price is. Okay, thanks, gentlemen. Best of luck. Right. Uh, we're going to circle you. back. Uh, Ryan, we got one thing just yeah. on your uh, effective tips. We want to make one thing going forward. Yeah, so, well, yeah, just one thing that I, I should have mentioned when we were talking about investments. Um, I mentioned that the, the impact of the tip portfolio, we actually have, have divested that portfolio was about $78 million, given the kind of the underperformance and volatility that is provided in, in results. That's happened uh, here during the second, early in the second quarter. And as a reminder, that is star one to ask a question. We'll take our next question from Paul Newsom with Sandler O'Neill. Morning, Paul. Good morning, and uh, thank you very much for the call. Just a real quick question. When you are thinking about uh, the increasing number of uh, customers that you're selling multiple products, are you looking uh, to price the, your products on a um, by-product basis, or are you doing it on an account basis? By-product. Okay. That's just, that was in my other words, question. The comp, in other words, Paul, the comp, coverage is separately underwritten and priced from the MPL coverage, which is separately underwritten and priced. It's very important to us to maintain the discipline of the pricing so that whatever the risk we're assuming are separately priced correctly. Terrific. Thank you. And as a final reminder, that is star one to ask a question. Here's we have no further phone questions. I'd like to turn the call back to our presenters for any additional or closing remarks. Thank you, Lauren. We will speak to everybody next in August. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. And that does conclude today's conference. We thank you for your participation. <laughs>